0: You know, many missionaries will tell you, if you ask them about their testimonies and their call, that the husband is often sure first, right? And then it's, I mean, I'm just saying that's just the way it often goes, at least the way I've heard it. And then um, and the wife prays about it and, and, and slowly, you know, gets there and, and then they go. Well, in our case, my wife was sure. And uh, we went that second time. She was absolutely sure. I was the 90, you know, 98, 99% guy. And uh, she said, that's where we're supposed to be. That's where that's where God's calling us to go. So when we did our survey trip, I told our pastor before we left, I said, I'm 99% sure, but I need to go one more time. I want to be all in. I don't want to put one foot in and have to take it back out. I said, I want to know on my worst day of deputation when everything's gone south and everyone's told me, no, I know that this is my call. This is what God's asked us to do and we can go with joy. And so, um, but it's interesting that my wife from that teen trip was, was so Confident from that point on, never wavered before that point. Often wavered after that, never. I was the one saying, Well, you know, we need to think a little. No, no, we're supposed to go. So, so I'm just thankful for, for Shara and her willingness to uh, to take um, the trip with, with me, and with our kids, you know, all the way down south to Bolivia, totally different place, uh, foreign from from here in, in many ways. And, um, and but she's uh, totally willing and on board to go with us and, and excited. She's excited to serve there as well. So, we're excited about it. And that's probably the slowest, just giving you know, uh, honored to be monitored. probably the slowest I've ever heard my wife talk in front of a group of people. So she did well. So now I'm going to try. So me and Pastor have the sign down. He does this again. That means slow, okay? So if I go too fast, I'll slow it down. Then um, I, I, again, apologize for that. But I wanted the pastor to know, <clears throat> I'm prepared this morning. If, uh, you know, as he was mentioning in the interview with Worldwide, he did take my notes. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in my shoes for a moment. The terrifying moment it was. I here I am, young guy, you know, and just uh, I'm gonna really milk this one, pastor. And uh, sitting around a table, just uh, you know, men of, of ministry for years, you know, m- much experience, many things God has taught them. Here I am, shaking, literally shaking, all right, literally, and he. He takes my notes from me, just pulls them away, and says, you're going to have to do it without that. <laughs> At the moment of sheer panic and terror, but, but it actually went rather well, and I'm very thankful, actually, that he did it. Uh, it. It helped me get my face up out of the notes and into the eyes of the guys around me, and so it worked really well. But today I'm prepared. I've got it on my iPad, all right, if he takes my sermon notes. If he takes that, I've got it on my phone through the iCloud, okay? <laughs> takes that, i got my computer in the back and pulled up right away. Takes that, I've got notes, all right? If he takes that, I've got it written in the margins of my Bible, and he's not taking my Bible from me, okay? So <laughs> so I'm prepared, all right? He can do whatever he can do is worse, and I'll have my notes still with me, okay? So um, just uh, just thought I'd throw that in there, so <clears throat> anyway. But um, but we are, we are thankful to be here with you, and as my wife said, we're thankful for the place to stay. It's wonderful. I... Don't exaggerate when I say that is the nicest mission home we have been in, and I dare say probably one of the nicest uh, in the country, and I mean that. It is nice. We went, oh, no, we forgot Ziploc bags. There were Ziploc bags. Oh, I didn't bring my coffee filters. There were coffee filters. Oh, we didn't do that, and there it was. And they all thought of everything, literally everything. My wife and I have said at least five times, they've thought of everything. It has everything you need right here. And so it's been really wonderful and great, and we appreciate it. And, um, and it's certainly our honor and privilege to be, uh, to be here uh, with you all. As my wife spoke of, um, gave testimony to just God giving us assurances along the way, um, it's a wonderful thing to serve God. And it's a wonderful thing how clear and plain He makes His will. It really is. I, I think we sometimes act as if God's hiding it from us, like it's a carrot that He dangles out in front of us and we can't quite get it or find it or attain it. And I don't believe that's the case at all. I believe God wants to show us His will. I believe if we'll, uh, if we'll walk with him, if we'll obey him, if we'll be in his word, be in fellowship with him, he's going to show us and make it very clear. Uh, it was that way when we joined with Worldwide, and it was that way, uh, as I was telling Pastor the other day, just walking through that, and it, was, it was that way with, um, uh, with Bolivia. Uh, of course, my grandparents were there, and, uh, and my whole life, had, had, I had known of Bolivia, I had been exposed to it. Uh, God wasn't tricking me, you know, about that. And I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't want to go to Bolivia just because my grandparents had been there. And I was very um, almost reserved to go because they had been, if you know what I mean. I didn't want others to say, we are going just because your grandparents had been there. And then when we took, um, as my wife explained, uh, we, we did not plan to go to Bolivia with our youth group. We were simply praying that God would open the door and show us what to do. I had finished Bible college, was wrapping it up, and I I just didn't know what was next. Serving in the states in the ministry, um, continuing on as youth pastor at Tidewater uh, as a voluntary position or or going as a missionary. And then trip was canceled. What could come, what good could come out of a canceled trip? Well, uh, I mean, we were a bit panicked. I'm going to be honest. I won't play the part of we were just calm and, and God has us under control. We were a little bit We've raised all this money. Now what do we do? Our youth were ready to go, and it had to be canceled. And then for a whole year, we sat on it. And when kids came back from college, because some of them had graduated, uh, Lord had just opened this door to go to Bolivia. Um, and they all said, you, you did that, Brother McKinney. I said, I didn't have any part in it. Uh, they were the only ones that would have worked for this trip. And we're so thankful. And they, the teens, who had been so excited to go to Europe... Um, and, and as much as I wanted to steer that trip uh, evangelistically, I, I think I may, it may have been a losing battle in Europe. It would have been hard. In Bolivia, I'd say we had so many opportunities to serve, uh, I think, I mean, nothing against going to see something. We had one day we got to go see, you know, a little bit of something. But the kids got to serve. We got to go to a small village up in the mountains, no hot water, you know, barely electricity. We were on straw mattresses on the ground, that kind of thing. And they just, they loved every minute of it. And it was, it was wonderful. We got to see several kids, six kids make professions of faith up there at that children's program. And it was just a joy. One of those teenagers is in college at Pensacola uh, in the missions program to go back to Bolivia, he says. Still says to this day as a sophomore. And then two others are in the medical program, and they have talked about wanting to be involved in medical missions. So we're just so excited what God did there and then what he did in our hearts. Beauty for ashes, right? God can take something that looks like it just nothing good can come out of it. And Romans 8.28 is still as true as it's ever been, right? And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them that called according to his purposes. And so uh, we're just uh, amazed when we went to, just to add another layer, when we went to Santa Cruz with our youth group. That's not La Paz. It's not the city my grandfather served in. Um, but a missionary from La Paz who had been helping some in the churches that he had started. I mentioned in the Sunday school as from a question that one of the churches had lost a pastor. So he had been assisting there. Well, he had left that and moved to Santa Cruz and got there 10 days before we got there with our youth group. Showed up at the airport. I didn't know him. i just seen him on Facebook. Helped us. As much as I was confident in my Spanish, man, would that trip have gone south had he not been there to help us. And uh, he really did help us in a great way and uh, carried our teens around in the back of his truck because you can still do that in Bolivia and they had a great time doing that. Though he did run under some trees intentionally just to throw some branches at him, have some fun. And, uh, and his windshield wipers, when you hit the cleaner button, it didn't hit his windshield. It went all the way to the back. And so that was really fun when you got to just uh, soak him back there. But uh, um, uh, but he was such a blessing. And then he said, Jacob, come back. If, if the Lord will let you, come back for a trip and we'll take you all around. And God had just brought this thing together wonderfully. Here's this family we didn't know from Adam. And they there 10 days before we got there. To a trip in Santa Cruz that we were only there because of a cancellation to England. Isn't it amazing what God does? Is he brings things together and He gave us such a, a peace and confirmation about the whole thing. We were just ecstatic and we said, We're going to come back and we did. We traveled all around the country and got to go to, um, back to La Paz to visit old friends and that was a tearful, joyful reunion. Got to go to Cochabamba. Um, wow, if you could just pick a place to be a missionary to, it'd probably be Cochabamba. It's called El Jardin de Bolivia, the Garden of Bolivia... Uh, it's called that for a reason. It's about 6,000 feet above sea level, which means you can breathe, unlike, unlike La Paz. And But it's 6,000 feet above sea level, so it's not down in the jungle region like like Santa Cruz. And so it's about... I don't know y'all don't like this here in Florida. Y'all like the hot weather. You like punishment. That's why you live here, right? <laughs> but um, but it's, uh, it's, it's about 75 degrees all year round in Cochabamba with a slight breeze. I know, it sounds horrible. It's awful, right? But um, about two months where it rains some, but just a beautiful place. My wife and I said, oh, if we could just... If we could just be here, Lord, this would be wonderful. But he wouldn't let us stay there. And so we went back and finished our trip at Santa Cruz. And God said, this is where I want you. This is your first term right here uh, with the Murray family. And uh, we've become friends over over these, uh, really now, almost a couple of years now, as time has gone on. And he's uh, texting me all the time, giving me updates. He texted me a picture the other day of the keys uh, to the building that was purchased and uh, for the church there. And so that was exciting. And uh, I'll be getting pictures of a sledgehammer here soon as they knock down some walls and make it more church-ready and, uh, oh, I want to be there with a sledgehammer in my hands. That's a fun part of construction, knocking things down. But, uh, but uh, that's all right. I'll get there when the Lord gets us there. And so we're excited. But thank you all so much for, for letting us be here and for sharing with us uh, a little bit, uh, sharing in our heart of what God has asked us to do and called us to do. Uh, and it's a privilege to serve the Lord. There's nothing better. There's nothing else we could choose to do. Um, I remember being a teenager, and my granddad, my dad's dad, was a businessman. And I thought, man, that's what I want to be. We, I was one of six kids, and we didn't have anything. We grew up in a trailer park. And if we ever got to go out to dinner, it was my granddad that took us. If we ever got to have anything, it was my granddad that did it, you know. And um, and I just remember thinking as a kid, that's what, I, that's what I need to be happy. I need to own my own business. I need to do my own thing. And uh, Lord cuts those things down. As you realize, that's not where happiness is. That's not where joy is. Joy is in serving the Lord. And we're excited to go do it. But if you have your Bibles this morning, let's go to Acts chapter 9 uh, for a few moments together. Acts chapter 9. I tried to paint a picture um, and hopefully, not too bleak, uh, but it is the reality of what Bolivia is like. When you're in a country that doesn't have uh, exposure to the gospel, you're going to have breakdown. You're going to have breakdown at the family level, at the, at the morality level, at, at just the nation level. You're going to have all kinds of, of practices and things that go on uh, that are even hard to speak of. And it's sad to see, it's sad to be, and it's sad to experience. But as we mentioned this morning, the only difference between us and anyone there in Bolivia, the only difference is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is this right here, the good news. Of Jesus, and what a, what a good news what what good news it is, right? That while we were yet sinners, right, Christ died for us, right? Romans twenty for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all deserved what? We all had the wages of sin on our life. We deserved hell, and God offered us a way of salvation to live with Him forever in heaven. John three sixteen will never get old. Don't ever let it become apathetic in your own heart and mind. For God so loved the world. That's me and you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We were teaching a kid's class in St. Mary's, Georgia last week, and it was fun. I love to teach the kids. I think a part of that is just Bolivia is going to be 70% children. God's given us a heart for children. As far as ministry there, a lot of our ministry will be that. And we do this PowerPoint and take them through Bolivia, and it's a lot of fun. A lot of laughs, a lot of neat things to see. They, you know, we talk about the food and the guinea pig bounces onto the screen, you know, so they, they eat guinea pigs and stuff in Bolivia so it's just they have fun with it right it, but then we get real if you will for a moment and and we quote John three sixteen together and talk about why we would go as missionaries and then just present that thought to a child's mind who often so innocent and not realizing the world outside of their bubble and often we as adults can be that way too but say you know you just quoted with me and everyone in the room did and all 20 something kids all, all of them quoted John three sixteen with me And they all knew, whether or not they're all saved, I don't know, but all knew the truth of what Jesus had done for them. So, you know, right now in Bolivia, there's kids your age, right now, talking to this class, they have no idea, they've never heard that verse. They don't know the truth of, of God's word. They don't know that God loves them. They don't get taken by their parents to church, maybe to a mass, you know, maybe to offer some kind of sacrifice. Maybe in Cochabamba, once a day they go for the, the festival of uh, Alasetas and go offer something to the Virgin of Cochabamba, who they who they uh, believe has the essence or the power of Virgin Mary. And it's a doll. It's a doll. They go and worship a doll. Uh, I said, and they don't understand the truth of God's word. They have no idea about uh, uh, about the truth of their sin and what Jesus has done for them and how He loves them. And and man, what a powerful thing the gospel is and the truth and the truth of His word. We were in um, again Cochabamba, and you saw in our video. The statue of, of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ looks a lot like the one in Rio de Janeiro. Though in Bolivia, they tell you it's a couple, they don't say inches, but they say it's a couple inches taller. I haven't pulled out the tape measure to check, right? But they say that it is, all right? So they're very proud of their statue. But it's on a mountain, and I should have taken a picture kind of behind the statue so you could see the same view that we saw. I just didn't have the foresight to do that. But it, it, it's on a mountain that overlooks a city that wraps around it like a horseshoe. And within the city limits, you have about 750,000 people. But if you count the suburbs and beyond, you're looking at about a million people from that vantage point that you can see. And on the bottom of the statue is Juan 14, It's John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I tell you, any vantage point when you realize that most of the people you're seeing have not had exposure to the gospel is a powerful moment. But when you have Jesus Christ with his arms wide open and a verse so clear on the bottom, See, so it breaks your heart to know they're so close. And yet, so far, they don't know what the verse means. They don't understand what it means that Jesus is the way and the only way. You ask them, do you know you're going to heaven? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> hope one day I'll get out of purgatory and get to go there. They just don't have a confidence in the truth of, of God's word and their eternal destination. But what's going to change anything? Well, the gospel is going to change anything. If If, if families are going to be helped... If, uh, if men are going to be the men they're supposed to be, if the mothers are going to be the mothers they're supposed to be, if kids are going to learn to honor their parents in any real way, if anything's going to be fixed, it's going to be through God and His Word and His truth. And when I think about a change, a dramatic change in the gospel, or that the gospel has made, I can't think of a more dramatic change than we find in Acts chapter 9. I love Acts chapter 9, <laughs> and you know where I'm going, you know the change that I speak of, but just work with me, and don't read verse 3, because that's cheating, okay? We're going to skip verse 3, we're going to come back to it, I promise. But we'll be at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and just share a few thoughts with you this morning on the gospel and its power to change lives. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues. That if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, And Saul, who's Saul? It's not the king of Israel, okay? Now that is a Saul, the first king of Israel. That, that was his name. But this is a couple thousand years later, right? So not the right guy. Who's this Saul? Well, this is the Apostle Paul, right? It would have been common at that time for, for a Jew who was also a Roman citizen to have two names. He would have had his Roman name, mean he would have had his uh, or Gentile name and would have had his Jewish name. Well, his Jewish name was Saul. Of course, a rich rich name in Jewish history would have been a good name uh, to name your boy Saul after the first king. And then Paul would have been his Gentile name. And you see that switch over in Acts chapter 13 as Paul is sent out of the church of Antioch Really, the church just recognizes the calling of the Holy Spirit on his life, right? And simply, you know, recognizes that call. And then they're sent out of that, of that church on his first miss, uh, missionary journey. And from that point on, he's known as Paul. I think a lot of the significance there is uh, probably simply to do that Paul was going to primarily be a missionary to the Gentiles. And so that his name uh, at that point began to be used solely as Paul. But here, he's not Apostle Paul yet. Here in Acts chapter 9, he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Right? He's a devout Pharisee. He hates Christianity. right? The name of Jesus Christ, he does not recognize him as the Messiah, as the sent one. He does not understand that he is the one that Isaiah spoke of, right? That the prophetic Psalms of David spoke of. He doesn't realize he's the fulfillment of Genesis 3 and verse 15 when it, when it speaks of the one that would come and bruise the serpent's head. He doesn't realize any of that. At this point, he's the enemy and all his followers are the enemy and he's going to do all he can to stamp them out, to preserve Jewish tradition, to preserve Judaism, And the religion of his God, Jehovah. And so he chases after these Christians that he had ran out, as we find in Acts chapter 8. We won't flip back there for time, but back up even farther in Acts chapter 7, Saul was the one who consented to Stephen's death. One of the first martyrs there by stoning. He didn't pick up the stones himself. He didn't get his own hands dirty, but he held the garments of those who did. And Stephen was killed right there in front of him. And he consented to it. And then in Acts chapter 8, it says he made havoc of the church. And he began persecuting severely the church in Jerusalem. They were scattered. They were gone. A lot of people have said that Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when when Christ ascended and told them that they were to go and spread and disperse. Where they were dispersed in Acts chapter 8. And then it kind of goes into an interlude in between where it deals with uh, uh, the evangelist Philip and Ethiopian eunuch and his glorious salvation and baptism and all of those wonderful things. And then it jumps right back in Acts chapter 9. See, he wasn't content that they had just run them out of Jerusalem. He's still breathing out threatening and slaughter. He's going to go hunt him down. And it says men and women. It didn't matter, right? He's going to break up families. He's going to leave kids as orphans. It didn't matter. He was going to bring them back in chains, have them before their judge in Jerusalem. And I'm sure Saul this time was wishing and hoping that many of them would be put to death. So here he is demanding with threatening. Can you imagine that? Look at the word threatening and slaughter. Have you ever seen someone that angry? I have worked in construction for eight years. I've seen a few guys that angry, okay? <laughs> I slowly step away as they're stepping towards Like, What did I do, you know? red face, mad, yelling, angry. That's him going in from the high priest saying, you're going to give me the papers. I'm going to go. I'm going to drag them back in chains. And then don't read verse 3. What happens? Well, we're going to jump to verse 19. That's how, that's how we leave him, right? He's demanding high, the papers from the high priest. He's going to go bring back men and women alike, doesn't care, back in chains to Jerusalem. Verse 19 of this chapter says, And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul, so here we got the same guy, Saul, certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. Now we put our thinking caps on. Was he at Damascus? The place where he had figured out what the Christians had scattered to? Well, it says it right here. He's there. Right? He's there. He's there. Right there in the city. And then what else does it say? It says says, certain days with the who? With the disciples. Did he find those that, as verse uh, 2 had told us, those that were of this way, which I love that phrase, by the way, if you're saved this morning, you're of the way, right? The only way. Did he find him? He did find him. He's right there with the disciples. Well, what's next? What's going to happen in verse 20? He's going to pull out the papers, right? Probably still in his pocket. He's going to pull them out, announce what he's there for. They already know what he's there for. He's going to bring him back in chains. Verse 20, and straightway, just means immediately, he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them was called on this name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest. But Saul increased the more in strength, confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus. And look at this phrase proving that this is very Christ. What in the world has happened? He left Jerusalem on his way to Damascus to bring Christians back in chains. Now in verse 20, straightway, he's preaching Christ in the synagogues. Verse 22, he's confounding everybody, right? He's convincing everybody. They can't argue against him, though this is the Christ, right? The persecutor all of a sudden become the preacher. The adamant Christ rejecter is all of a sudden this adamant Christ proclaimer. What in the world has occurred between verse two and verse nineteen through twenty-two that, that would have created such a dramatic change in the life of Saul? Well, verse three. We'll go back. I'm sure you didn't read it. You didn't cheat on me. Verse three. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, it shall be told thee what thou must do. If you go to Acts chapter 26, Paul gives testimony, or Saul gives testimony to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and gives more about what is said here and what occurs. He kind of reveals more of that conversation that happened on the road to Damascus. I think it's important to to know what was said. In verse 15, says, says, I said, who art thou, Lord? This is Acts 26, verse 15. He said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. You recognize the conversation. It's the same. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom I now send thee. And then verse 18, I believe that Jesus, whom he's speaking with on the road to Damascus, can you imagine? (laughs) What's going on here? Put yourself in these guys' shoes sometimes. It would help us all if we read Scripture not as stories but as accounts that happened. And imagine being where they were. Imagine where he is right now and Jesus begins to tell him what what he's going to do. And I believe what he's telling him to do is the same thing that happened to him on the road that day. Right? Verse 18. This is what God is sending him out to do. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. You see, Paul's or Saul's eyes had been blinded for a long time. Ironically, on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by the light of the glory of God and had to, it was blind for several days until Ananias comes later and opens his eyes, right? But for the first time on that road, he actually saw. Can you imagine the moment? I mean, he was a Pharisee. He probably knew Genesis through uh, you know, the whole Pentateuch. He, he probably could quote just hundreds of chapters all throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And all of a sudden, that veil, right? As Second Corinthians 3 speaks of that veil is taken away. And he sees. His eyes were opened. Can you imagine? Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one the Old Testament prophets prophesied of. He is the one that Isaiah spoke of. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. This is a God-fearing man, and as much as he knew. And in that moment, for the first time, he realized that he'd been serving the wrong side. I think there was a, you talk about a repentant heart in that moment, I think there was some horror and repentance going on in his heart in that moment. He realized, I wasn't serving God. In fact, that was on the opposite side. And then the next part is the best, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. What happened to Paul? How could he go from the Christian persecutor to the Christ preacher? He got the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember? You remember the day you were saved? Ever read Pilgrim's Progress, that burden on his back? And man, he wants that thing off, Right? He goes to the, the worldly wise man. He, he goes to several trying try to figure out. But the evangelist told him early on in that story, look, you've got to go there. You've got to go to the straight gate. That's where you're going to find it. And ultimately, the cross is where that burden gets taken off his back. Do you remember the day you were saved? I think it's way and far too easy for us to become apathetic about the forgiveness of sins. From the moment that Paul was saved, I submit to you, not one day did he take that for granted. I believe from the morning he woke up until the night when he went to bed, his desire was what? It was to preach the gospel because he had received the forgiveness of sins and he wanted someone else to receive the same. An inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. His inheritance, eternal inheritance, was secure forever. Paul saw I was never going to be rich, but he didn't care. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. How could he speak of that? I have an inheritance in heaven that can't be touched, right? (laughs) That Peter talked about, incorruptible. You can't touch it. And that's what I'm going towards. And that's what he was pressing on towards. You say, what happened in Paul's life that there could be such a dramatic change in this chapter? Well, he found Christ. And Christ found him. The gospel message to him in a moment was real. He understood it. With a repentant heart, I believe he was saved. He Caught out on God as his Savior as he, as he received the forgiveness of his sins. So what could make the change? Only the gospel can make that kind of change. Can I submit a few things about the gospel to you? One is the gospel can reach anybody. This was Saul, the Christian killer. He had blood on his hands, and yet yet the gospel reached him. Actually, in 1 Timothy, Paul goes on to describe and and basically tell us in verses 15 and 16 that he's the ultimate example. If God could save him, he could save anybody. Let that person come into your mind right now of the person that God can't reach. God can't touch that person. They're too far. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's a region. Maybe it's a country. I don't know what would come into your mind, but think on it. And then you can just kind of push that thought out of the way. Why? Because if God saves Saul, God can save any of us. Saul believed that. I believe that. And I hope and, and pray that you believe that. Gospel can change anyone. But not only that, the gospel can use anybody. If there's was anyone that shouldn't have been able to be used, it would have been Saul. Right? Look what he was guilty of. Look what he had done. Right? It was anybody who would have had the excuse to say, I, I, I can't do anything for God. I can't be used. I'm not talking about qualifications, disqualifications of men. I'm just talking about being used of God and however he wants to use us, right? And Saul, man, he had every excuse in the book to say, I can't can't do anything. Look what I've done. Look at my history. Look at my past. And instead, God turned that thing around and was going to use that in a powerful way for him to reach the world. Gospel can use anybody. And gospel change, by the way, is real. (laughs) Right? The the Bible doesn't say that we're a new creature, a new creation, for no reason. Right? Right? When the gospel changes us, it changes us. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but there's legitimate change. You never see Saul going back to persecuting Christians, did you? You never see him turning his back on Christ or who he embraced that day on the road to Damascus. Never, never again. This change was permanent. This change was real. From this day forward, Paul was going to be having a different tune, a different, uh, uh, different step, a different goal in life, was to serve God with all that he had. It changed him in such a powerful way in a way that should change each and every one of us. I'm not going to dwell on these points. I just want to give them to you. ways that they changed uh, Paul's life how the gospel impacted him, and how it should change and impact each and every one of us if we're saved this morning. In verse 6 it said, And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I think first of all he surrendered his will. The gospel will do that to us. It should do that to us. When we say, what an amazing thing that God has done for me. Right? Romans tells us what in 8? He spared not his own son. He didn't hold anything back. Do you see Paul in verse 6 of Acts chapter 9? Does he say, Lord, what will I have me to do as long as it's not this or that? He was a Pharisee. He could have said right from the get-go, as long as it's not the Gentiles, right, I'll serve you, right? And we would think that Peter would have been to the Gentiles as a fisherman and Paul to the Jews, but God turned that thing around. The unlearned fisherman was to the Jews and then Paul ended up to the the Gentiles. Makes no sense in our minds, but God knew what he was doing, right? And so right here in Acts, the first thing it says, Lord, what would you want me to do? No exceptions, no exclusions. What does a Christian have to do? God, you've saved me. From my eternal destination in hell, you've saved me. You've changed me. Now, what do you want me to do? Then we have a lot of Christians that instead of hands out saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? We're having a lot of Christians do this. Or maybe we give them a partial piece. I'll give you some. You can have this, but not that. You can have this corner, but not that corner. You can have some of me, but not all of me. Paul said, Lord, what will you have me to do? No exclusions, no exceptions. Think on this thought. We'll move on to point number two. Think of Paul's ministry and all that God would use him to do. Right? Right? the majority of the epistles in the New Testament. I, I, I've researched, but yet it's a bit debated how many churches were established by him and his ministry team there, okay? Somewhere in the 30s, 40s, 50s. You can be the judge. You're smarter than me, okay? But, uh, but a lot, right? And before he died, by church tradition tells us that he was beheaded in Rome. Essentially, the whole known world at that time had been at least exposed to the gospel by Paul and his ministry team. Traveled some 15,000 miles. Incredible ministry, right? Well, where did it all start? How did it all begin? It all began with Paul saying what? Lord, what will you have me to do? It began with a yes. I'm not saying we're all going to be Apostle Pauls and, and, and we're not all going to see you know, uh, thousands upon thousands saved. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is God wants to use each and every one of us in, in an incredible way, not by man's standards, but by God's standards. You know, if I go to Bolivia, I spend a lifetime and I don't see great revival. I'm confident I'm doing what God's asked me to do and, and I'm confident he's going to get accomplished what he wants accomplished. He wants to use each and every one of us. But how is that story ever going to start? It's going to start by just saying yes. A lot of Christians' story as far as doing what God has asked them to do never gets started because they hold on to a lot of it right in the beginning. God wants to use each of us in our prayers, in our going, in our finances, every way. He wants all of us. God, what do you want me to do? Secondly, he not only surrendered his will, but he sought to further the cause. He had been a gospel enemy in about every sense of the word, Right? Now he was a gospel partner. What did he do in verse 20? Straightway, immediately, he preached Christ in the synagogues. You know, nobody had to twist his arm. No one had to say, This is what you must do. Immediately, he said, Well, I'm saved. God has changed me. Let me go tell somebody. Now I understand his background, he had extensive Bible knowledge, and God used that in an incredible way. But immediately, he was out preaching, sharing the gospel with somebody else. He became a, a gospel partner right immediately. You say, Well, I'm not a gospel enemy. I don't hinder the cause of Christ in any way, but my question would be this. As a direct result of our lives, is the gospel message being spread farther to reach more lives around us and beyond? Isn't that the convicting question? I'm not asking if you're hindering it. I'm asking this as a direct result of your life, is it going farther? Are we being used by God to play our part of the Great Commission? Yes, He's given to the local church, but local church is what? Members, people, right? We each have to be involved. We each have to be doing something. We have to be going and telling. We each have to seek to further the cause of Christ in whatever way we can. I believe Paul woke up every morning saying, What can I do to get the gospel just a little bit farther? In Romans 1:15, he says, So much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. As much as in me is, everything that was in him, he was ready to preach the gospel. Can you imagine if there was a nation of, of churches and, and Christians that said, you know what? As much as in me is, everything that's in me, I'm ready to do it. I think we'd have an impact. <laughs> I think we'd have a great impact on this country and on this world if we were willing to say, I want to seek to further the cause of Christ. Paul did so immediately. I believe the gospel should change us in that way. I don't know how it is that it's been tampered in our own hearts, in my own heart. You know, I I grew up in church culture, if you will, and I grew apathetic about it. So I just have it, and it took it for granted. I I have it, and and I'm within a circle of other saved Christians, and that's not what God wants us to be. He wants us to be so moved by the gospel that we want to give it to somebody else. Paul said, I'm going to further the cause. And then lastly, and we're done, is he sacrificed all for the sake of Christ. Not only surrendered his will, sought to further the cause, but he sacrificed it all. See, initially, in Acts 9, his reputation was on the line. Initially, they were saying they were confounded. They were confused. What are you doing? You came here to arrest people. Now you're preaching Christ. This doesn't make any sense. But eventually, by the end of it, we didn't read down that far, but he's lowered by a basket because they're going to kill him. It went from your reputation is on the line to your life is on the line. From this moment on, Paul's going to be chased from city to city, all over the place, his life on the line constantly, as he's willing to sacrifice all for the sake of Christ. Verse 16 of Acts 9 spoke of the great things that God told Ananias that Paul would suffer. Paul didn't even know all of that in the beginning. But if I can close with this thought, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul speaks of the suffering, and at that point of that letter, he had already endured much of it, as we find in chapter 11, he talks of his stoning, his beating, his, his, his imprisonment, his shipwreck, all the stuff that he went through. In 2 Corinthians 4, let me read a verse to you. It says, For which cause we feign not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How is that possible? Look at verse 18. While well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, Things you're not seeing are eternal. Where were Paul lying? Where was his eyes on? His eyes were on eternity. How could he say this light affliction? You're lying, Paul. You suffered more than anyone has ever suffered. Except for Christ himself, right? How could you say light affliction? Because his eyes were on eternity, not on today. right? His eyes were on those that were going to be in heaven with him one day. On what he could do to serve God and store up treasure in heaven, not here. He said our light affliction... We look not at the things we're just seeing, but the things we should not see. If you could with me just for a moment as we close out this morning, in front of the beam of seat of Christ one day, I believe all Christians uh, will be judged in the sense of however we use our talents, our gifts, how, what motives were behind what we did for Christ. And, and those that were of no value will be burnt up. And those that are of value, Corinthians 3 talks about it, it's, it's the gold, you know. The soil, it's not the wood, hay, and the stubble that will perish away. And, and, and we'll be judged in that way. But I don't think any Christian will stand before God one day and say, you know what, I really, I mean, just, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, just enter in with me here on the thought. I don't think any of us will stand and say, you know what, God, I wish I would have done just a little bit less. Looking back over my life, you know, I wish I wouldn't have done as much as I did. What a waste. I wouldn't have given, I wouldn't have given my life, I wouldn't have been willing to go. I just wish, you know, I told too many people, right? Would any of us? No, of course we'd say no. But that thought hit us. What are we going to say? We're going to say, God, I wish I would have done just a little bit more. I wish I would have taken this a little bit farther, given a little more sacrifice, just a little. Why? Because it's worth it. Because it's eternity. Take the scales out and put eternity on one side, and then put whatever else you want on the other. What's going to happen? Eternity outweighs it every time. That's why Romans talks about it being our reasonable service, right? Because it's reasonable to serve God. We we talk about that altar of sacrifice, we can put anything up there, and it won't outweigh eternity. Because eternity outweighs it all. God help us, we'd have our perspective on eternity. Paul said, You know what? I was in darkness. I couldn't see a thing; lights were off. And then God took that veil away from my eyes, and I'm going to do everything I can, no matter what it costs me, to get that to anyone that I can. He was in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. He was warned not to go there, right? (laughs) But he went anyway. So the Holy Spirit's telling me to go. You know, none of these things move me. The things that they were telling him were going to happen. I got to go. Ultimately, he does uh, run into some trouble. Accused of bringing the Gentile, I believe, into the inner court. And he was taken out. He didn't even do it. And then he was beaten almost to death. The Romans come in and save him at the last second. And then he has to be carried, the Bible says, up the steps because of the beating. He can't even walk. That's at the end of Acts chapter 20 before Acts chapter 21. But he can't even walk. And then he says, I beseech. He begs the guard, the chief captain of the guard there. He doesn't even know what's all been happening, if he can speak to the people. So now he's at an elevated position overlooking the same mob who just tried to kill him. And what does he say? Well, I know what I would say. (laughs) You have any idea what you would want to say to those same people who would probably have chased you from city to city to city to city? You know what he says? Acts chapter 21, he begins his testimony of when he was on the road to Damascus. He was there to go bring back men and women, it says, just like in Acts 9. And the Lord met him on the road, and his life was changed. Can you imagine? He was just beaten almost to death, and all he wanted to do was what? Have the opportunity to share the glorious light of the gospel with those people just one more time who had wronged him in more ways than we can ever imagine being wrong. God help us that we say the gospel important. It's changed me dramatically, and I want to tell somebody else about it, that we'd be moved in that way. God help us all that we'd be willing to have open hearts and, uh, and let the gospel do a powerful work in our lives.